Shabbat Shalom. And welcome to Congregation Beth Adonai. I am so excited and grateful to be standing here to talk with you, to you, about his word. And that's what we're going to do today. Um, our topic is African, Greek, and Jewish, African, Greek, Jewish, and Chinese cultures and the believer's response. It's a mouthful. It's it's an excellent topic. Um, I love researching. I love figuring things out. Um, by the way, my name is Terry Farrell. I'm one of the 10, 10 a.m. teachers, and I'm grateful again I get to do this. And again, it's awesome to be able to do that research to kind of challenge yourself to, to just know and do certain things. So um, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us when we didn't love ourselves. Lord, thank you for loving those who need your help, Father. Show us how to be um, a help to others. Show us how to help people who are in need, Father. Lord, I thank you for your words that will go forth today, Lord. I know my voice is speaking, Lord, but you are speaking to every individual in ways that they need it, Lord. And I just love that, Lord. It's, and it takes all pressure away from me, Lord. I am just... I am just a, a vessel here being used, and I just give you praise for that, Lord, in Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I want to welcome those, and I also get the, I get the opportunity to look at our stats, and we have people that are on, online that are viewing us from uh, Japan, from Australia, from Saudi Arabia, and I just think it's neat, so I say welcome from any other country along with the United States, if you're viewing right now. So hopefully you'll get something out of this. Hopefully you'll get something that'll help you to um, help your walk with the Messiah so that you can walk with him better. I want to start with, personally, my life mission is to know God. It's to help others to know God. From person to person, house to house, culture to culture. That's the bottom line. That's our purpose. And here at Congregation Beth Adonai, our mission is to reach the lost and educate the found. That's the goal. Everything else in our lives should just fall under that. I enjoy having fun. I love watching basketball. I enjoy doing a lot of things. I love mathematics. I absolutely love it. Um, I think we need to do a lot of things, but our main mission is always the gospel. I don't think we need to ever forget that. And when we do forget that, I think that's when we start going in the wrong direction really, really, really fast. The gospel is not automatic. What do I mean it's not automatic? I think every generation, because sometimes we think things are so automatic, like our, our children sometimes, we open the refrigerator. I say we, maybe me too. My children, they open the refrigerator and just think the food just automatically appears. Is that true? We know that's not true. The food does not just magically appear. Somebody has to go and get it, and we have to continue to get it. Matter of fact, somebody has to go get, get, get a job so that you can make the money so you can put the food in the refrigerator. Somebody has to have enough sense to have the peace to do all that. See, all of that is not automatic, and we can't just assume that these things are going to happen. That's why we can't just assume that the gospel is going all over the world because it's just happening that way. This is our part. This is our job. We have a mission to minister the gospel. We're all in the ministry. So I say, what? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a rabbi. It doesn't matter. Everyone sitting, listening to my voice, if you're a believer in Messiah, you're in the ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 
It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So all of us are in the ministry of reconciliation. We're reconciling the world to him. That's the whole point. When we get an opportunity to share or allow our lives to share the gospel, we should be honored and take it as a privilege and not a chore. See, sometimes we, maybe we get an opportunity to minister to somebody and maybe they're not ministering back to us. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're giving so much. You feel like, I'm just giving. I'm just, I'm pouring out my love and I'm not receiving it back. Well, maybe it's not meant for you to receive it back from them. Think about that. Because sometimes we're giving into people and God's going to give back to us in so many different ways. And sometimes we are being blessed in order to bless somebody else, period. So when we get the opportunity to be, and it's not just speaking words, sometimes it's just being. Just being around people is an opportunity to share his gospel, to share the word, because we want to connect everybody to him, period. Your life is a setup. Your life is, a, at least it is, your life is a setup. You are set up to get in position to share. We're all set up in different places. I'm set up here because I'm able to speak words. You're set up at your job, wherever your career field is, to share the gospel. I have here, favor is not fair. Anybody heard that? Favor is not fair. But sometimes we, at least in that context, sometimes we think, you know what, God blessed me. It's not necessarily that fair that he blessed me and he didn't bless another other guy. That's not what I'm referring to here. That's not at all what I'm referring to. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But what I'm referring to is maybe you've been favored to share with someone the gospel. Maybe that's the favor that you've been given. Maybe you've been favored to clean the bathrooms at the congregation. Is that a favor? So, no, that's not a favor to clean the bathroom. Yes, it should be an honor to do anything to connect with him. Maybe you've been favored to wash the dishes. Amen, dishwashers. Okay? That is an absolute favor to be able to do that. That job and any job that we get an opportunity to do is just as important as someone speaking. It's the same. There's no difference. And if we honor it that way, it changes our outlook on how we walk with him. If God can get it through you, he will get it to you. And it's human to want fairness because sometimes you're helping people and it just doesn't seem fair. I'm helping this person. I'm not getting no love back. Where's the love, man? Where's the love? Well, maybe you're not getting the love through them, and that's okay. You do good to me, I do good to you. That's human nature, right? That's what we want, but it's just not always that case. There may be times when you are helping and, or blessing or being a blessing and not receiving anything in return. Can God trust you to walk in his favor? Can God trust us? That's a big question. It's actually hard if you honestly think about it. But I think as long as we surrender our lives to him, God can trust us with favor. It's not that you have to do anything perfect because God already knows us. Don't act like he don't know. God knows you're not perfect. God knows all of us, are, we're not perfect, but God wants us to surrender our lives to him so that he can use us in our way. That's why I, it takes the pressure off of me whenever I get a chance to do things because I'm not concerned 
on how you view me, if you visualize that, because I'm concerned on how God views me, period. I'm grateful that you view me in a certain way. That's fine, but that's not the issue. The issue is how does God view you? Because I'm a believer. Can God trust you to walk in his favor and still keep serving hurt or wounded or giving love to someone that is not giving back? How do we respond to a culture that is for or against our beliefs? It may be easier if the culture is against you in your choices. Let me, let me, let me um, explain that. I'm not necessarily saying it's good that the culture is against you, but sometimes it makes our choices easier because you only have one choice. Maybe the choice is to not respond in a negative way because some things are very obvious. But what if the culture around you is kind of skewed? You really don't know what decision to make. So when the culture for, is for your beliefs, it could lead to an, I like to call it, an overprivileged mentality. You know what I mean by overprivileged mentality? That means that we just think it's automatic, that it's just supposed to be that way. The gospel is always supposed to go out. And I think if we ever get in that mindset, we start to go backwards. Because the mindset is, I need to, it's an emergency to get the gospel out, period. Romans 12.2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for your life. So that means we need to, again, we need to get our minds, we need to take our minds, we need to transform it with his word and allow him to perfect us. Don't allow what's going on around you to affect what God is doing in you. That's hard. And I said this the last time I had an opportunity to teach. The boat is designed to float as long as the situation on the outside does not get on the inside. Think of our lives like we're, we're this boat going along. We don't want to let stuff from the outside get in. And I believe that's our response. And I'm trying to make it that simple because when we know God, when we walk with him, he's talking to us. He's teaching us. He's sharing with us so that we can sh take what we have and share it with the rest of the world. That's the whole point. I was looking at um, this week is, what's the Torah portion for this week? Vaira. And it's really, when you look at the commandments, it's a response to the culture. It is absolutely a response to the culture around them. They were living, obviously they were in slavery, um, but they, they started to pray. And it said that God heard their prayers. And think about this. Why did God take ten plagues to get Israel out of Egypt? Why didn't he just take them out and bring in like a magic carpet or something and pull them out? I don't know. I just, because, it, because that wouldn't have, I don't think that would not have served his purpose. See, I believe those ten commandments were there in order to teach a lesson. They were there to teach the world that God is completely sovereign, that he is in control of the ground. And something else I was looking at, I was listening to um, some teaching on that if you were to take those, um, the commandments and group them, you can group them in from the ground level. Think of the ground level to just say the ground levels first. And this is one way the Hazal, the sages would group them. From the ground level was one group, the first three. 
The next three were grouped from the ground level to think of however high we are. This is like our atmosphere. And the last three are going to be above our atmosphere to the sky. Let's think about it. What was the first plague? Blood. Blood was in the river, right? What's that? That's on the ground. Y'all see that? The second one was, what was it? Frogs. What was the next one? Making y'all think, huh? Making me think, too. It was, no, I think it was lice. It was blood, frogs, then lice. Some, some, some translations say gnats or something else. But blood, frog, think about it. All those three are connected to the ground. Y'all see that? The next three is what? Flies, uh, cattle disease, and boils on the skin. Think about that. That's in the middle. You see the middle? That's the next three. And then we got three more. What's the last three? Locusts, hail, and darkness. That's from the height all the way above. See, God is sovereign over everything. And darkness, that's obviously, that's everything. So God is showing humanity that he is sovereign over this entire world. And that was a lesson. Again, he could have took him out in one plague. He didn't need it. He was teaching the world. He was teaching, he was teaching Pharaoh, who kept, you know, Pharaoh had his issues, but we all have our issues too, right? How many things are God trying to teach us? Maybe we need some plagues. Anyway, but you see I'm going, right? I don't want no plagues in my life to teach me those lessons, okay? I just want to hear his word, and I want to do it. But I want you to see the big picture that God was just teaching. Pharaoh was just hard-headed, just like many of us are hard-headed. Right? Anybody hard-headed in here? And you know you're hard-headed? I'm raising both hands, okay? We are. And we, sometimes we need somebody to come in our lives to help us. And I believe this is our response to the culture. Our response to the culture is not necessarily to go and start a revolution. It's not. Because Romans 13.1, and if Romans 13.1 is everyone, everyone must submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So everyone who resists those authorities are resisting against who? God. Think about that. Even, I believe, even with the plagues, God was honoring Pharaoh. Think about that. Why is God honoring Pharaoh? Again, he didn't have to come in, bring a man, Moses, to come to Pharaoh and say, Sir, I've been listening to God, and you need to let these people go. That was an honor. He's God. He didn't have to do any of that. But I think even in that, God was showing us how to respond to culture. We don't just go and I don't, I don't believe it's biblical to start revolutions. I don't, and I won't even go there yet. Next week, we're going to leave that there and just let it hang. I think it's our response to pray for things when we get a chance to pray. I think it's our response to do things internally to change the culture. Maybe we're going to be an advisor to the president or maybe we're going to be an advisor to whoever, and that's how I think we, as a believer in Messiah, is going to get our word out to change the culture, period. All right, let's talk about cultures. Our culture should benefit and help each other, not destroy. I think that's obvious. Let's define culture. Culture is the social behavior 
and norms found in human societies? Do we have a lot of social behavior and cultural norms? What are some cultural norms since we're here? All right, help me out. What are some cultural norms? Christmas is a cultural norm. Is this something that a lot of us here, we don't participate in Christmas? But some of us still do participate in Christmas. Do I need to go out and make a statement and have my banner and come against Christmas? No. I just think, again, that one's simple, that we can change the culture, though, one person at a time. Because if everybody, if this group, if a lot of people are not doing this, guess what? That's going to start to guide the culture. And I believe that's how we change our culture, one person at a time, as we begin to do it. Because sometimes, again, you don't have to say words in order to influence somebody. It's just because you're being. It's because, you know what? Because I absolutely love Shabbat. I love it. I love coming here. I love having Shabbat every week. My family, we have our Shabbat family dinner at home. We sit down. We say the prayers. We pray. We do all those things. And I absolutely love it. So when I share this with some people, I'll tell them, because some people that don't necessarily know about Shabbat, I say, we have a family meal every week. We sit down and share the scripture. And they go, wow. So who's going to be against that? Some people might be. But most people are like, oh, okay, that's great. But then maybe another door opens up for me to share something else. Or somebody else, I may sow a seed. And somebody else will come over here, and they're going to sow something over here. And that's the big picture. And that's how we change our culture, one step at a time. Sometimes we try, sometimes I like to think of it this way, sometimes we're just trying to do too much. You know what I'm talking about? Because sometimes we get overzealous about something, and you want to tell everybody that you can't celebrate Christmas. Or you want to tell everybody that, what's some other cultural things? Um, maybe abortion. That's a big one, right? That is definitely a cultural thing, and some people are for or get. I think the scripture is very clear that that's killing babies. I don't think there's a question in my book. But how do we change society? How do we tell others about that? One person at a time. Maybe we're going to get an opportunity in our culture to vote against it. And that's what we need to do as believers. And, and that's how we change our culture. Because we have to go along with what God has put in place. Because we just talked about Romans 13.1. It says everyone. Who's everyone? Is anybody here not a everyone? If you're not a everyone then you are lying this morning. Anyway, just joking. All right. Everyone must submit to the governing authority. The scripture is very clear. We all need to. And when we do that, I think we have peace in our lives. Because the, the scripture says we are, to, we are to pursue living quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness. Period. And the question is, how do we influence our culture? And be thinking about this. We may not get to it um, today. But think about some cultural issues in our world that we can discuss at the end, the last five minutes. That's my goal. We're going to do it this time. And if not, we'll do that next time. But think of some cultural issues that we can discuss. Because we're going to talk about Greeks, we're going to talk about the Chinese, and we're going to talk about Africans. When I say Africa, I almost hate to say Africans because you know there's 54 countries in Africa. So you can't just say Africa. You have to talk about Nigeria. You have to talk about Congo. You've got to talk about different ones. So when I say Africa, that's in general talking about the continent. All right. Our culture should, I said that. And something to think about as we get, get ready to dive into some of these cultural things. When we look at history, many times we try to judge what's happened with our 21st century mindset. So when we study history, 
we try to say, oh, there's no way I would have done that. Well, that's because you're living here in America and maybe you have no concept of what they're going through. That's why it's so important if you're studying something to try to immerse yourself in that culture as much as you can so you can understand it. And that's, and that's what I do. That's one reason why I love studying the Jewish roots of our faith because I want to immerse myself in our Messiah's culture. His culture was Jewish. And if we don't know that, we're reading another book. And that's why it's so important as we begin to do the festivals, do Shabbat, we start to see things from his perspective and you start to see scripture in another light, a whole nother light. You start to see things that you would have never seen because you just, you just didn't know the culture. There's some cultural things that we will miss completely if you don't understand it. And that's just the way it is. All right, another foundation bubble. God makes the rules. It seems obvious, but everybody doesn't get that because sometimes we want to make our own rules. It's a foundation bubble. Why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil off limits in the garden? Was it because God didn't want us to know the difference between good and evil? That doesn't make sense. God does not, he completely wants us to know the difference between good and evil. I believe the tree was there because, and we won't go into a lot, but the tree was off limits because these ultimate judgments of good or bad is God's job not mine. That's why it was off limits. It was off limits because that's his stuff. God determines tov, which is good, and ra, which is evil. That's his job. And our job as believers is to seek his face, walk with him, allow him to change our mindset, and he's going to teach us what's good and what's evil, and we're going to teach the world, one person at a time, however that comes. Only the maker of the system can be trusted to make these decisions. Eating from the tree says that I want to be master of the garden. This is the way the world should be. I can pronounce Tov and Ra. You cannot pronounce Tov and Ra. That's God's job, period. I talk about Greek culture and Jewish culture. I have a study here. And the study is by a, a professor named Michael White. And I have a, a lot of material that, I say a lot, some, I ordered this book. This is show and tell now. This one is called The Discovery of Genesis. And this one is about the Chinese culture that we're going to talk about. And this particular study here, this one's about the Greek culture, Hellenistic ideas. Um, so I just want to let you know some of my resources. And I want to read this. It says, what do you mean when you say Hellenistic? Hellen Hellenization or Hellenism refers to the spread of Greek culture that had begun after the conquest of Alexander the Great in the fourth century. One must think of the development of the Eastern Mediterranean really in two major phases. Um, again, this is just a study that I wanted to, where do I want to get out of this? Oh, let me just read this. Hellenization or Hellen Hellenism refers to the spread of Greek culture that had begun after the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE. One must think of the development of the Eastern Mediterranean really in two major phases. The first, the conquest of Alexander, which brought Greek culture to the Mid -East, Middle Eastern territories. Then, subsequent to that, the Roman imperial expansion, which would take that over politically, 
but Rome didn't immediately transform everything into a kind of Latin Rome, Roman culture. Rather, they worked with the Greek idiom. And so much of what we see in the culture of these cities, like Caesarea Maritima, Maritima, is a kind of Greek city structure with a Roman political organization playing off between the different elements of Roman and Greek city life. And it goes on to talk about a lot of other things about the Greek culture. Um, but understand, when you say Greek culture, you're somewhat referring to the Roman culture as well. And we have certain things that we do today that is influenced from that culture. Matter of fact, a lot of things that we'll, we'll talk about some of them. Um, but let's, I want to read something from the Gomorrah. It's a story of when Greek culture and Jewish cultures collided. I think I read it at the end of the last time, but I know I had to rush through it, so this is a quick version. It says, the Gomorrah tells of an incident in Yoma 69a. Is the Kohen allowed to wear the big day, big da kahuna outside of the Beit HaMikdash? And remember, what we're trying to get out of this is how the Jewish culture, or at that time, if you visualize God's culture, is connecting to the Greek culture. That's what we're trying to get out of it. So again, is the Kohen allowed to wear the big da kahuna outside the Beit HaMikdash? The 25th day of Tevet, Yom Har Grizim, the day of Mount Grizim. Mount Grizim was a place where the enemies of the Jews, known as the Kutim, Kutim, and most of us heard of the Samaritans, lived. The Kutim were plotting to destroy the temple. Shimon HaTzadik found out and put on the Bigta Kahuna, you know, that's the, the outfit for the priests, the colorful one, and he went out with a delegation of other Jews to meet Alexander. Just understand what he's doing. They were clutching torches, walking all night until dawn came. When dawn came, Alexander saw them coming from afar. Alexander asked, and this is Alexander the Great, he conquered a lot of civilizations. Um, but Alexander asked the Kutim, who are they? So Alexander and the Kutim are walking up and they see this delegation of Jews. They see someone wearing the big Kahuna. They don't know this colorful outfit. Just want y'all to see the picture. The Kutim, Samaritans said, they are Jews that are rebelling against you. As they reached a place called Antipatris, the sun came out in all of its glory. And in full daylight, they met. It's a showdown. The fight, anyway, it's not a fight. As Alexander the Great saw Shimon HaTzadik approach, he got down off of his, his chariot and bowed down before Shimon HaTzadik. Hmm, what's going on here? They said, why? And I say they, the Kutim, those who are watching. They said, why you, a great king, bow down to this Jew? He told them, every time I go out in victorious war, I see a vision of this man. He is always going before me in battle. Wow. Alexander, he's not a believer. He doesn't follow God. He's, I say, he's following many gods. Because remember, this is Greek civilization. Um, they believe in many gods. Alexander said to them, why did you come? Shimon Hasadik says, could it be that the house that prays for you and your kingdom, Alexander, that you be not destroyed, that our enemies would seduce you into destroying that very house. We are praying for you. 
Alexander was convinced and the temple was saved. Wow. I think that's awesome. But understand what happened. It was very simple that the high priest went out to meet Alexander the Great. He didn't go out and try to form a battle to try to attack him. He, he, he already was praying for him. Imagine in our country, it's, I think, not think, I know. We have so, our privileges are so great that sometimes we can take it for granted that we need to pray for our leaders. Imagine if we lived under, I don't know, Adolf Hitler. Okay, y'all like, would I, would I have the ability to pray for my leader if it was Adolf Hitler? Wow, that's tough to think about, right? But honestly, the scripture says we need to pray and submit to our leaders. If it was Adolf Hitler, it's not Adolf Hitler. Thank God it's not Adolf Hitler, okay? But imagine, just think about um, those who live in like, we're going to talk about China soon. Um, some countries have dictators. That's their world. Do they need to pray for their leaders? Absolutely, they need to pray for their leaders. That's how they're going to change their society. Unless God tells them to do something different. That's why I said, when the ten plagues was God's response to the culture. It was God's response. Because that's how God took Israel out of Egypt. That's how he took them out, one plague at a time. All right, let me continue. In the story of Hanukkah, everyone in here remembers the story of Hanukkah. Was that a response to the culture? Absolutely, that was a response to the culture. Um, this, and again, we know what happened with Hanukkah. We're not going to go into that story. But the story with Shimon Hatzadik, this was a positive interaction between cultures that went over well. With the second Greek encounter called Hanukkah, they attempted to force their culture on everyone, and we know the end of that story. And I have here the, the, the favorite Jewish joke. Y'all remember the Jewish joke? They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. It's the story of the Jews, right? Happens over and over and over and over throughout history. According to a, a traditional story recorded in a letter of Aristeas, the Torah was translated into Greek at the request of Ptolemy II, and 70 or 72 Jewish scholars translated the Torah from Hebrew to Greek. This is the Greek Septuagint. This is another positive interaction between cultures, Jewish culture and Greek culture. Be a source for healing someone that may be different than you. You will realize that you are really helping to heal yourself. And I think that's the big deal. That's the goal. To change you starts with you. Y'all agree with that? Can anybody change you? No. We have to change. That's something that we have to do ourselves. But how do we change the culture? How do we change the society? How do we change the world around us? That's difficult. And it's, I don't think it's something that's so simple that we can just put our finger on. It's going to be many, many different ways we can do that. I have here an example. Smoking was a social norm. Does anybody remember? Many of y'all remember when smoking was cool. Matter of fact, if you go watch old movies, you see them on TV and smoking is just a thing. It was a normal way of life. That was just what they did. My parents smoked for years. They don't smoke anymore. But that was just, that was part of the culture. Do you think they were smoking because they just, do you think the culture had anything to do with them smoking? Yes, had a lot to do with them smoking. And I have another, um, another study that I looked at. It says, we exploit migration patterns from United Kingdom to Australia and the U.S. to investigate whether a person's decision to smoke 
is determined by culture. And I think everyone in here would agree that it is, but this is an actual study. They did some research on this, and the conclusion was by relying exclusively on temporal and intergenerational variation. In this paper, we show that culture is a significant determinant of smoking participation. So again, we change ourselves by changing us. But we change the culture. Sometimes it has to be policy decisions that are changed in order to change the larger culture. And that's why we have to do our due diligence to go in and pray for our leaders and do those different things. When Europeans, Greeks, Romans, Africans, and I say that loosely because there's many countries in Africa, uh, began to embrace Christianity or Judaism, many began to embrace it with the figures that look like them. Y'all agree with that? Yeah. That's kind of normal. It's, it's because that's your culture. So you just figure that every, every your biblical figures, if you're studying that, they're going to look just like you. That's, that's kind of normal. This painted a picture of Christianity and Judaism that may or may not be accurate on a surface level. May not be. And this is a, a thought bubble. Did you know in 1495, Leonardo da Vinci began painting the, last, painting the Last Supper on the wall of the refectory dining hall of Santa Maria del Grazi in Milan, Italy, and completed it in 1498. So it took him three years to do that painting. So it was a lot of work into that, but again, it was just a painting, and we need to understand that. And that's just one. There's many of them out there that are they're just paintings. They're great paintings. They're beautiful. I'm sure they did a lot of work, but it's just not accurate to what the biblical account is. That's why we have to do our due diligence to go out and study, which is so important. We need to learn how to sift through socially accepted norms with his word. That's why I believe everybody needs to be born again. When I say born again, I'm not talking about the scripture. I'm talking about we need to be born again from the ideology of how we grew up. We need to be able to see the evidence and make decisions for ourselves. Because everybody grew up, if you grew up in, in Tokyo, in Japan, you're going to see and view the world a certain way, but your culture affected how you see the world. I'm an American. Everyone in here, or maybe not everyone in here, is everybody here American? Maybe. Anyway, if most of us are here, we're Americans, and our culture is shaped by our world. But guess what? Are there things in our culture that's really not biblically sound? Yes. Yes. And that's what I mean by we need to be born again. I say this to my high school students because I teach math. I tell my high school students, and they look at me like, whoa, you're not supposed to preach. But I say, you need to be born again, which means what I'm saying you need to be able to see the evidence for yourself. And when you start to see the evidence, you start to decipher this thing called truth. And the truth is there. And I have a proof, which we're going to get to. Um, it's a seven-point proof. Let's pause and talk about it. I believe the truth exists. Do, y'all believe, do you believe that truth exists? Truth, so that means there exists an absolute objective truth, period. What's the opposite of truth? Lie. It's not the truth. You want to call it lie, not truth, false. Call it whatever you want to call it, but it's not the truth. There is one truth. There's some who don't believe that, and that's a conversation to have. 
and this is something that's good when you're talking to somebody, and this has helped me a lot. Sometimes you almost have to, and if people are honest, you almost have to corner people in your conversation so that you can kind of see where you're going. Because sometimes you talk to some people about their faith, and they're going all over the place. They're going over here, left field, so you've got to corner them. So this is just something that may help. This is a proof that, and it's not something that I came up with. I got this from Norman, got his last name, somebody, but I got this proof from him. But anyway, so first truth is there is an objective absolute truth. The second one is the opposite of truth is not truth. The third point is there exists an absolute creator who created everything. Do you believe that? Most people will not argue with those first three. We're gonna, we'll have some arguing points here in a minute. So first, truth exists. Second, the opposite of truth is not the truth. The third one is that there is an absolute creator that created everything. I mean, it's tough to be an atheist to me. You've got to have a lot of faith to believe that this body, your body, the universe, all came about just by random occurrences. Think about that. I just want I don't even know. Sometimes it's hard to even explain it. But I think one way to talk to people about it is to answer them according to their own logic. Which means I want to use your logic to answer your question, and I want, to, I, want to watch, I want you to see it blow up. Does that make sense? So you say, you know what, I, I believe that there's no God. Okay, so that means you believe that everything occurred through random processes. So that means we really, we really can't have logical thought from these random processes, so we can't have this conversation. We need to stop talking right now. See you later. But you get the point, right? See, you have to, like, turn it back on them because if everything came from randomness, you can't have order. You cannot have any order from random. It makes no sense at all. Um, the number pi. Everybody knows what pi is? Not eating pi. I like eating pi. But the number pi has no order. It goes on for millions of digits forever. There's no order. It's complete random. And that's how some thoughts are if we believe that everything came from nothing. Anyway, let me go back. Sorry, I'm off track. All right, first, truth exists. The opposite of truth is what? No truth. The third one is there, is, there exists an absolute creator that created everything. So the fourth point is if there exists an absolute creator that created everything, this absolute creator defines truth. Does that make sense? Yeah. He has to because he created it. If I created a widget, I know how that widget works. You need to come to me, right? And I have to point to my guys out here, maybe some ladies. You buy something, you want to put it together. What should we do? Read the instructions. But what do some of us do? Come on, I'm guilty, okay? I'm just going to look at the box. I got this, man. I can do it. Five hours later, all right, where's the instructions? Let me, look, let me Google this to figure it out, right? All we had to do was go and read the manual from the one who designed everything, right? Because he created it. So there's no confusion. It shouldn't be. I think we make things so hard sometimes, we're just confused. And I think as we're responding to our culture, this is how we change our culture, one person at a time, talking to people. All right, let me get back to the proof. So first, truth exists. The opposite of truth is what? No truth was the third one. There exists a creator that created everything. The fourth one, this creator, defines truth. 
this creator who created everything defines truth. The fifth one, now this is a fighting point here. This is the one that you can argue. I say argue, you can argue all of them. But this is the one that you may, some people may, you know, may leave you at this point. The Bible is reliable and historically accurate. Do we believe that? We believe that here. But then you've got to define when you say Bible. Do you say Bible? What do you mean? Because some people, their word or their holy scripture might be the Quran. Right? And they're going to try to say, oh, they're the same. No, dude, they're not the same. They are not the same. And that's why you've got to have those conversations and be very specific when you're talking. So I believe the Bible is reliable and historically accurate. And if someone agrees with you with that, then you can continue with the conversation. If not, you see how you got to stop there and bring them in? You might have to stop there and, have, and go and have like a five-week research conversation about why, how valid the Bible is, how valid and where it comes from. When you say Bible, what does that mean? Do you, when you say Torah and when you say Bible, does that mean the same thing? We know it really means, here we know it means the same thing, but some people don't understand that. When you say Torah, they think, ooh, that's some mystical stuff, get out of here. No, it's just the Bible. Some people, no, I only, I only read the King James Version of the Bible. Hey, guess what? The King James Version came from the Torah. We get that? Absolutely we get that here. It came from, there are 22 letters in the original Hebrew script. 22 letters. Those two are 22 letters which are behind me in this um, ark. Those 22 letters make up our Torah. And from that Torah is where we get all of the translations. And even before those 22 letters, those letters were in picture, pictorial form. If you look at like the Aleph, and I'm getting off topic, but it's okay. If you look at the Aleph, you know the Aleph means an ox. I'm just giving you one picture. But each one of those letters, they mean something. And you can follow that back and look at the evolution of those letters. And see, this is point number five, which means the Bible is reliable and historically accurate. Again, that's why you have to really uncover that and make sure that when you're talking to people that they understand where you're coming from. All right, number six. And we'll probably end with this. This is good because my PowerPoint didn't come up. So we'll have our PowerPoint next week on the Chinese cultures and the African cultures. So that's beautiful. Um, so number six is, no, number five was the Bible's reliable and historically accurate. Number six is now, since the Bible is now reliable and historically accurate, I can use the Bible. Does that make sense? I just can't, because that's why you can't just start talking scripture to some people and they don't even believe it. You're just talking to yourself, right? That's why you have to establish that the Bible is God's final authority. The Bible is his word. It is the truth. And if not, just stop talking. You need, to, you need to gear them back to that and get back to that conversation. So number six, John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And what does sanctify mean? Set apart. We are to set ourselves apart with his word. That's why it's so important. That's why in Romans 12, 2 it says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we take his word. I'm so grateful for his word. What if we didn't have his word? That's a, I don't even, that's a bad thought. I saw, saw looking at some of y'all face like, mm-mm, mm, no. But when we get to the Chinese culture, later we're going to talk about it, they came up with ideas, and they didn't even have, from their original language, they didn't have the Torah. It was pre-Torah. 
and they came up with these ideas. Some of the words, and I just got to say this one word, this one word from the Chinese culture that's a boat. The boat is eight people in a vessel. That's the picture. This is from the language. This was pre-Torah. Where did they get that from? I bet if there was a worldwide flood, even if you didn't have a Torah, there are going to be a lot of people that know about this worldwide flood, right? Do you think there's a lot of cultures that are going to talk about this? Absolutely, all over the place. Because that's where they, the cultures come, came out of that. So they're going to have legends, they're going to have stories. Some of the stories might not be accurate, to be honest. Because some of them, they may allude to it, and they may go off on another world and start talking about something that doesn't make any sense. That's why you have to always line it up with the Torah, with the Bible, because sometimes it just goes in the wrong direction. So I think this would be a great place to stop. But next week, we're going we're gonna to continue, and we're going to talk about how African cultures, um, I say Africa loosely because, again, there's many countries in Africa, how Africa was, was um, connected to the Jewish culture, um, Chinese cultures, and also the Greek culture as well. So let's pray. Father, I just love you, and thank you so much for an opportunity to share. Lord, thank you for showing us how to spread and speak your word throughout this planet, Lord. Show us how to be a better witness for you, Lord, so that we can connect people to you, so they can walk with you, Father. And I give you praise for everything you're going to do today. In Yeshua's name, amen.